Okay, welcome back to our study of the Dhammapada. Today we continue on with verse number 50, which reads as follows. Napare sang vilomani, napare sang katakatang, atanova avikeya katani akatani cha, which means napare sang vilomani, vilomani, one shouldn't concern oneself, oneself with. Uh, the faults of others, napresang vilomani, viloma is uh, the faults, napresang vilomani, napresang katagatang, not the faults of others, not the deeds that they have done or the things they have left undone. Atanova avikeya, one should concern oneself or concern oneself with oneself, atanova, Indeed, one should concern oneself with oneself. Katani akatani cha, in terms of what one has done and what, has, what one has not done. So, a kind of a, it's a in English it means uh, one shouldn't, you shouldn't concern yourself with the deeds and the omissions and the faults of others. You should concern yourself with the things that you have done and the things that you have left undone. So rather, it's actually a rather general um, teaching that can be applied in, in different uh, ways, or in different senses, but the sense here is, is actually a little bit specific in terms of the, the story, so which goes as follows. There was once a... Uh, a woman living in Savati in the time of the Buddha who looked after a certain naked ascetic, one of these uh, recluses who, who decided, uh, religious um, practitioners who followed this idea that through torturing oneself or through abstaining from any form of comfort, any form of physical comfort, one could uh, whittle away the defilements, burn away the defilements. So they had this practice called tapas, where they would uh, torture themselves, or, or by, by burning themselves, they would, they would burn the, the defilements, this, this, this pain and torture and the, the difficulty of or the hardship is a sort of tapa which means uh, heat. And so one of the practices was to go naked and this was a common thing in India. Even today you'll see um, ascetics wandering around naked from time to time in different, uh, different parts of India. It fits into a broader philosophy that uh, the the real the true problem or the true cause of suffering is passion is is lust is essential desire and uh, so the the 
the torturing, the, the undertaking of things that are unpleasant uh, is a means of abstaining from this, this sort of attachment. So of course the Buddha pointed out that there's another kind of attachment and that is the aversion that comes from torturing yourself or this uh, repression that comes from, from abstaining from things, this uh, cultivating this forceful will of, of, of denying yourself pleasure instead of coming to understand it is another extreme. And the Buddha taught a middle way, which is the understanding of sensuality and the understanding of, of, of addiction, which uh, can't really be accomplished by extreme practices. When you never have the opportunity for the arising of sensuality, then you can't understand it. So if you go to the extreme of wasting away, um, which they would often do, not only would they go naked, but they'd often starve themselves. And when you starve yourself, you you have very little of, of the defilements arise, very little addiction or attachment arise. And so it seems like you're actually burning it up. But of course, this has nothing to do with the underlying causes of the attack, attachment and the addiction, which is ignorance and, and delusion, just a misunderstanding uh, or a belief that you're going to find satisfaction, these wrong beliefs which can only be eradicated through wisdom. So, of course, this, this, it's not the right framework within to, to free oneself. But this is sort of the common thing that you'll find. I mean, without, without having the understanding of a Buddha, it would be, well, the, you, you find a huge, a wide range of religious practices like this in the world. All because people are not, simply because people are, you know, these beings are not enlightened, so they come up with an idea based on their whim, based on what suits them, and based on, uh, often just based on a uh, whim, no? something that uh, strikes them as right at, the, at a given time, or, or something that strikes their fancy. And you can start whole religions this way, where people think that they really believe something, but actually it just comes about by chance in the mind, and this is where the Buddha was very good at seeing through, and he would ask tough questions like, well, well why do you, you know, is that really an objective practice that you follow? What, what good really does it do to go naked? You know, is there really a intrinsic benefit to it? It's not just, I believe going naked is going to make me enlightened, or I believe starving myself. It has to be based on cause and effect. It has to really do what you say it's going to do. And, and so they would have all these crazy beliefs, like if you do this practice, you go to heaven. It was similar to religious traditions today. They had these beliefs. If you, for your whole life, you go naked as a naked ascetic, do it as a, as a practice, then you'd be born in heaven, or, or you could even become enlightened or so on. If you starve yourself to death, this is a common practice in certain religions in India, religious traditions, if you starve yourself to death, you, you're, you're assured of a place in heaven. Um, and of course, there's there's no logical reason to believe such a thing. Does it purify your mind to starve yourself? I think it's highly debatable, and in fact, I would say certainly doesn't purify your mind, uh, not not in and of itself. The purification of the mind has to come about through qualities of mind. It can't come about through bodily states. If a person starves themselves and and still clings to wrong views and wrong beliefs. There's nothing about starving yourself that, that eradicates these.
So, anyway, this was the the uh, sort of a standard practice in India, and so there was this uh, this this ascetic who was looked after, they say, like a son. She looked after this ascetic like he was her son, and uh, so he would always come and get come to her house and and receive the finest of offerings, and he got kind of. Uh, I guess he wasn't starving himself. Certainly wasn't, according to this story. But he was certainly going naked, and so that was seen as something very difficult to do because most people have difficulty wandering around naked, especially in India, full of horse flies and deer flies and all sorts of uh, nasty creatures um, that could go after you if you're naked. So it's a, it's a, it is actually quite painful, and of course, under the hot sun, naked, and so on. And uh, having having to deal with the cold, and having to deal with the wind, and having to deal with the heat and the sun, all uh, without wearing a single piece of clothing. And on top of that, the shame that comes and the embarrassment that comes from from being naked is uh, not an easy thing. So it is a um, pretty impressive practice, and this was what impressed this woman. But, of course, the fly in the ointment was that uh, everybody else in Savati, or more and more people in Savati, were going to Jetavana to listen to the Buddha's teaching. And so there, were, there was less of a, an inclination to practice or to, to, to uh, follow these naked ascetics and to, to entertain them and to feed them and so on. So they, their, their wealth and their luxury started to diminish, their fame started to diminish, because everyone was going to see the Buddha. And this woman, of course, she heard about all her neighbors going to see the Buddha, and so she thought, hmm, well, maybe I should go and hear what he has to say. This is, you know, in India it wasn't, they didn't have religions in that time. It wasn't, you, I belong to this religion, I belong to that religion. So people would go to different teachers and, and, and ask them the same questions and try to get teachings from different teachers. There was no sense of this religion, that religion. There was only, what does this teacher teach? What does that teacher teach? Um, I mean, and, and so there would be like the following of this teacher, the following of that teacher, but people wouldn't identify with this religion or that religion, not so much. And uh, so she didn't think it a big deal, you know, everyone would go and hear this sadhu, this religious holy man. And so, she, but she thought, well, I should ask my uh, revered teacher. And uh, this is the naked ascetic. And so she went to him and she, asked, she said to him, you know, look, I, I hear this, uh, there's this Samana Gotama is uh, quite a teacher and I wonder what you think, should I, would it be okay if I went to hear him teach? And the naked ascetic <laughs> of course, hasn't uh, eradicated his defilements and starts to get a little bit concerned because he's heard what happened to his buddies, all the other naked ascetics, how when their students went to uh, listen to what the Samana Gotama had to say, well, somehow he had this magic that converted them. They talked about the, the Buddha's converting magic. They didn't they wouldn't uh, entertain the thought that his teaching could be any good, but they thought he had some, must have had some kind of magic that allowed him to convert their students. Kind of this uh, hyp hypnosis or kind of like a, a love potion or something. And so he became quite distressed. He, of course, he didn't let it show and he said, no, 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 don't, 
tried to be calm and said, no, no, don't go see him. That's, he's, he teaches the wrong thing, he teaches bad things, and he's, he's just misleading people, this kind of thing. So, of course, he, had, he didn't really understand the Buddha's teaching, didn't, probably had never heard the Buddha's teaching, probably had just heard rumors of what the Buddha taught and so on. So he had no reason to say it besides the fact that he was afraid of his own uh, well-being, his own livelihood. But he managed to dissuade this woman from going, and and yet she, you know, kept hearing about how great this Samana Gotama's teaching was, and probably she heard some snippets of what he taught, and uh, so she, you know, again and again would pester this naked ascetic and say, you know, look, well, what do you think of this teaching? And of course, she couldn't answer, and and so she would ask, you know, look, I really want to go see this Samana Gotama and listen to what he has to say. No, 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 don't go, it's wrong, it's bad, it's evil. Uh, until finally she she, she kind of got frustrated and said, well, you know, this, this guy, there's, there's no reason why I shouldn't hear this teaching, so if he's not going to let me go to see the Buddha, then I'll just invite the Buddha to come to see me. And so she told her son to go to invite the Buddha for, for a meal the next day. So her son agrees and, and is on his way to the, the monastery to, to see the Buddha, but he thinks, hmm, I wonder what, the, uh, wonder what our, our teacher, naked ascetic, this naked ascetic, will think of this. Uh, it sounds like he wants to stir up trouble, but uh, anyway, he goes to see the naked ascetic and says, hey, so, uh, oh, where are you going? Oh, my, my mother wants me to go and invite the Samana Gotama to to uh, for for the meal tomorrow morning, and he said, "Oh, don't no, don't invite him. He's wrong. That's wrong. That's bad. He'll uh, he's going to take away all of our. He's going to take away my livelihood." He said, "Look, don't don't go. T Here's what you do. Don't don't go tell someone go. Don't go tell this Gotama. Uh, don't go and invite him, and just go home and you know tell your mother that you that you invited him." And then when he doesn't show up tomorrow morning, the two of us will split the food together. All of the good food that she's given, I'll, if you don't go, I'll give you an equal share of whatever food she's made for, for the Buddha. And he said, oh, I can't do that. My kid's got a little bit of scruples. He says, my mother will yell at me if I do that. This, uh, I can't do that. He said, oh, he begs and pleads. He says, no, no, don't go, don't go, it's wrong. It's going to destroy me, please. And, and well, he's really gotten upset at this point. And the son, the son keeps refusing and says, no, no, I have to go if I don't go. My mother will yell at me. And, and he says, okay, well, do this. Look, go and invite the Samana Gotama, but don't tell him where you live. Uh, don't tell him you live, in the, don't tell him the street, don't tell him your address, don't tell him even what part of the city you live in. Just go and invite him for tomorrow's meal and then run off uh, in a different direction, as though you you lived in that direction, you don't run off in, in a totally different direction. And so he goes to the goes to the Montajetavana and he, see, he says to him, he says to the Buddha, please, we want to invite you for tomorrow morning for the meal tomorrow morning. And then indeed he runs off in the wrong direction, goes to see the ascetic, tells him what he did. He's great. So tomorrow morning we will share this, share the meal. There's no way that. Uh, the Samana Gotama will find your house, which of course is not true. 
the commentary points out quite clearly that the Buddha, this is the one thing that the Buddha knows, is the paths that lead everywhere. And it says the Buddha, when he became enlightened under the Bodhi tree in, in uh, Isipat, no, in uh, Bodhgaya, uh, all of the paths, all paths became clear to him. He knew that he knows the path to hell, the path to the animal realm, the path to the hungry ghosts, the path to the human realm, the path to the angels, the path to become a god, and the path to Nibbana. How could he not know the path to this woman's house? Of course, it's a little bit of a different kind of path, and, and uh, most of us, even though we practice meditation, we don't ever get this kind of knowledge of the Buddha that is able to uh, find people's houses, for example. But the Buddha had such powers and was able, was, there was, you know, the point being that his knowledge was able to encompass uh, the whole of the universe and he could understand such deep things as, as the arising and passing of a being. So uh, on the night of his enlightenment, one of the knowledges was he was able to see beings, like actually in his mind, watch beings dying, watch them being born, watch them coming and watching them going and watching them go according to their desserts, or go according to their karma. He was able to uh, to visualize or to, to, to look, to oversee the, the process of birth and death. So he was able to see the, the paths that lead to this realm and that realm. But just that, that power of mind was such that he could then apply it in any direction he chose. Kind of like psychics. Um, and in fact, this is a common phenomenon that uh, is claimed by, by, by psychics is this ability of remote viewing. And in fact, there's online courses you can take uh, or, or tutorials on how to practice remote viewing so that someone, you, you, have, you have a friend and you send them somewhere and then you think about where are they? You start to question where are they? And, and for some people, visions start to emerge. So you're able to see things that they're seeing and so on. The sort of remote viewing. Now, of course, this is like a, a firefly. The Buddha was like a, the blazing sun. His wisdom, his knowledge was so clear and precise. He didn't have to use a friend. He just knew where, where this woman's house was without any difficulty. So there's no problem in that. And these two... two uh, miscreants are sitting there waiting for their just desserts and then the Buddha shows up, sits down and is served by the woman and uh, eats his breakfast. And the ascetic's hiding in behind. He sees the Buddha coming and he doesn't want to meet the Buddha and so he's hiding in, in, in an inner chamber. And the woman comes out and she serves the Buddha with all this great food and when the Buddha's finished, the Buddha starts to give a talk. And uh, he, 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 he starts to describe the benefits in, of, of this woman's uh, deeds and all the good that she has gained through offering food to a holy person and so on. And uh, she's, she's excited and she's uh, pleased by this. And so she says, sad. She holds up her hands and she says, very good, thank you. I'm glad to hear that kind of thing. 
and the ascetics in there in sitting in the back and he hears this woman just uh, falling for the for the Buddha's tricks he thinks you know falling for the Buddha's magic and he comes out he storms out gets very very angry and he comes out and he starts abusing this woman and he calls her a hag and a, a, a witch and, and uh, all, all these horrible names and starts abusing her and starts abusing the Buddha and calls them both such terrible names and so on. The commentary doesn't go into detail as to all the bad names but roundly abusing them and then runs off. Runs out of the house and probably Probably the earth opens up underneath his feet or something and he goes down. No, it doesn't say that. But this upsets the woman quite quite um, violently. Because this was her teacher who she thought was a holy man. And here to see him uh, put on such a display and, and to abuse her. And, and really the part of it's not just out of shame for what he did, but it's uh, out of a feeling that she had done something wrong, of course, because when you trust someone, when you put your faith so much in someone, the, to, to have them so violently or, or aggressively attack you, and it can often make you doubt even the truth and, and doubt what's right and make you wonder what you did wrong and feel guilty and so on. And so she was quite moved and distressed by this and trying to think how could, you know, what, what to do. I mean, she just lost her, her soul support, her teacher. Um, or she'd, she'd come into his bad graces at this point. And so she wasn't able to listen to the rest of the Buddhist sermon and, and, and the discourse. And the, Buddhist, the Buddha realized this and, and asked her, he said, are you not able to listen to my talk? Are you not able to, pay, to focus and pay attention? And she said, oh, I'm just so disturbed by that, uh, by my teacher's um, words, by his actions, by his behavior. I can't concentrate at all, and this is where the Buddha said, "Oh, you don't worry about what he don't worry about his behavior. One shouldn't pay attention to the the deeds and the the, the the things that other people do and the things that other people say. One should look at one's own deeds and the things that one has done and one has left undone." And this is where he gave this verse: "Not mani, not sangatagatang," and so on. So it. It actually is it's for a fairly specific um, very specific uh, uh, situation or circumstance the the idea of uh, not letting people get to you when they um, when they attack you when other people do and say things that harm you that, that upset you to not let other people's deeds upset you. But this this verse, I think, as with many of the verses, it, it goes far beyond the actual circumstances of the story. The, the most obvious one that comes to mind is, is, is when we compare ourselves with others. Where we look at the faults of others, where we, we criticize others. So, And you can see that in this story as well, because the Buddha is, is somehow indirectly criticizing this ascetic. You know, he's saying, don't be like him. You don't like the way he acted. Well, don't be like him and worry about how, how, uh, wor wor and and criticize him. Right? You don't like him criticizing you. Don't go back and criticize him. Uh, meaning that you know, this is uh, his behavior was far worse. Don't don't even don't descend into that terrible behavior of his. And 
this is of course the, the most important aspect of this verse is the criticizing of others, finding fault in others. And the funny thing about finding fault in others is it's often because we see fault in ourselves, often because we're unsure of ourselves, or, or I mean, you could say always because we're unsure of ourselves. A person who is sure of themselves has no need to seek out the faults of others. You know, they might point out for information's sake, or, or even criticize in as far as um, offering information or insight into a person's behavior, whether it's good or bad. But they have no no intention or desire to to seek out the faults of others. They have no no fear or no concern of, of a person being better than them. Uh, and they have no fear of themselves being worse than others. They have no sense of this because they're confident in their purity, in their behavior, in their, um, in their goodness, in their righteousness. So you see this in weak people. People who are weak will often attack others, even though they put on this air of being righteous and self-righteous and being right. It's um, because of their own instability of mind that they have to attack others. When your mind is stable, when your mind is clear, you have no reason to worry about the, the actions of others. Um, but it, it is an interesting twist that, the, that, that is put on in this story, is that even, even more than that, we shouldn't rely upon the opinions of others. Um, we shouldn't be so worried about when other people insult us, when other people say bad things to us. That shouldn't be a define. A def, that shouldn't be our the defining factor in, in how we see ourselves. So, if someone if someone insults you, or or as this ascetic did, this should this shouldn't. There's no reason for this to be the defining factor in how you view yourselves. And and this is often a real problem. It's a problem directly here when when we do receive insults and and people attack us and how much this hurts us, how much we let this affect us. But it's also this ever-present sort of uh, societal influence where we have uh, this, this self-image that we have to portray. We have to be someone we're worried about how other people think. You know, as a teacher, I'm worried about how I'm viewed by my students and how the people on YouTube are going to view this video and are they going to like it, are they going to dislike it. Was this, this concern that we have for, for other people's um, judgment of us, appraisal of us, is, uh, is crippling. And it's, uh, it's to be discouraged. It, it makes us lose focus, it stops us from achieving our goals, it stops us from being happy, it stops us from finding peace. And so much stress comes just from this, we would call this conceit, this comparing ourselves to others, find, comparing ourselves in terms of seeing ourselves as less than others, seeing ourselves as greater than others, better than others, trying to be equal to others and, and comparing ourselves as to, am I equal to them or am I good enough for them? Am I, uh, are they better than me? And so on. These kind of concerns that we have, this is, this is on the level of what the Buddha was saying, which is actually a, sort of a, a deeper level. Um, And, and there's, in, there's yet another level that isn't really mentioned here, and that's in terms of, although it might be, you, you might point out that it's seen in, the, in this teacher's behavior, how concerned he was for his student. 
And this is in terms of worrying about other people's um, other people's deeds, worrying about. So he was worried about this woman. I mean, you might actually cynically say that this guy was just worried about his own livelihood. And I think to some extent that's probably true, but it still points to the fact that he was worried about her behavior, concerned about her behavior. And this is another important um, application of this verse, where we worry about the well-being of others, and we spend all our time obsessing about the happiness of others, trying to make other people happy, trying to please them, or um, trying to instruct them even, trying to uh, keep them on the, what we think is the right path for them, offering them advice and teachings and, and pushing ourselves on, pushing our opinions on them, worrying about, about other people. It's, it's, in some sense, it's much easier to do than to worry about yourself. This is, um, there's another, well, there's two teachings that, that, that parallel this verse, and one of them is the teaching the Buddha gave on these two ac acrobats. There was a father and a son, and the father, uh, two acrobats, and the father said to the son, look, you get up on my shoulders, and watch, you watch my feet, and I'll, look at, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of your feet, and you watch where I'm going, and I'll watch where you're going, and we'll, uh, we'll perform our tricks that way. And the, the son said, are you crazy? That's not how acrobats perform. You have to, when you walk, you watch your feet. I'll get up on your shoulders, and I'll look after my feet. You just watch where your feet are. And the Buddha said, this is, this is how we should see our relationship with others. We should um, pay attention to our own step, pay attention to our own deeds, and not concern ourselves. And if every, of course, the the point being that if everyone worried about their own um, about their own deeds and 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 misdeeds, uh, then we wouldn't have to worry. There would be no reason to worry about about others because everyone would be doing their own uh, job. Would be doing would be performing. Uh, properly. The problem is that we don't concern ourselves with ourselves. We concern ourselves with others. And so the other teaching is the one in the Mahavaga that, that describes the, right, the time just after the Buddha's enlightenment where he meets this group of young men who had hired a prostitute or a, a, some sort of escort. Um, it was something like they had Twenty-nine of them had girlfriends or wives, but one of them didn't, and so they got her. They got him a sort of a escort, uh, some kind of uh, courtesan, and so they went off into the forest and they were they were playing and 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 then they all kind of took a, a, a rest or a siesta in the forest, and this this courtesan she while they were asleep she stole all their their jewels or else they were swimming or something and she grabbed all the their jewels and ran off with them. And so they came back and or they woke up, I can't remember what it was, and found that their their jewels, all, all their, their possessions were gone. And they realized that this courtesan had stolen them and so they started chasing after her, looking for her, trying to find her. Right? And then they met the Buddha at first. The Buddha happened to be in the forest. He was heading to heading back to Rajagaha or Uruvela first. And uh, so he stopped by because he knew he'd meet these guys, so he wanted to meet them first. And they came up to the Buddha and they said, hey, have you seen this woman? Have you seen a woman in the forest? And the Buddha said, what's the woman to you? What's this woman to you? And they said, 
she stole all of our jewels and all of our possessions and so on. So we're looking for him. And he said, well then tell me, young men, Tanking Tanking Manyata Kumara. Tanking Manyata Kumara. Katamang wo tumha kang warang. Katamang tumha kang warang. What is of greater benefit to you? What is what is better for you? That you should find this woman, or that you should find your that you you should seek out this woman, or you, that you should seek out yourselves. Very poetic sort of teaching, but it's one that we always refer back to: seek out yourself, seek yourself. Gawesati. Gawesati is this verb that's used many times by in in many places by the Buddha to describe the search where we search for things that are um, subject to old age, sickness, death, defilement and, and so on so this is like kind of like the you have in the Bible where Jesus said you know, let the dead bury their dead or you know, one has to leave, you have to leave behind your family and so on the Buddha is here giving them this sort of spiritual push to help them to see what's really important. And he said, well, why don't you, why, why are you so concerned about worldly things? Why, why does this, why, did, why is it that worldly things bother you so much? You know, the deeds of other people, the things that you can't take with you anyway. Why don't you look for yourselves? And so this is, um, there's another sense in terms of worrying about the deeds of others, worrying about what they've done wrong and trying to correct, trying to amend other people's deeds or, or fix other people's problems. And all of these, of course, have very much to do with our meditation. It, it has to do with the difference between concepts and reality. Reality is, in some sense, solipsistic. We exist in our own universes. We never really um, experience other people's universes. We only come into contact with other people's universes and experience them indirectly. And so all that's real is our own experience. All that we can understand as being real and existing is this right here and now, our seeing, our hearing, and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking. And so part of the, the that which takes us out of this reality is our engagement with other people, our engagement with the goings-on of other people. This is why it doesn't work to watch someone else's foot. You can't watch where I'm going and I watch where you're going and everything work out. This, this is a level of a layer of abstraction that uh, destroys any ability to function. And so that seems like a silly example, but it actually is directly, um, or it's on the same level as trying to fix other people's problems. I think it's so easy to fix other people's problems. This is not something, the point is that it, it may indirectly help them, but it takes taking you out of reality. It um, doesn't lead to, to happiness, it doesn't lead you to peace. You're, you just more and more and more try to fix other people's problems, and because that's dealing on the level of concepts, it's something that never ends. It never, it has no uh, satisfaction, it doesn't lead you to find true peace and happiness, it just goes on forever and ever. Your mind becomes more and more distracted with the workings of other people. 
And as I said, because it's easier, it's, it's much easier to, to deal in concepts. It's much easier to give other people advice because giving advice is the easy part. The difficult part is following the advice and practicing according to the advice. So meditation helps us. It helps us on the level of not taking the deeds of other people seriously in terms of getting upset by them. Uh, even to the extent of, of the, the well-being of others. So we, we work always for well-being and, and never work for the suffering of others. But we don't have this sense of stress and suffering when other people fall into, into suffering, when other people, when the people who we love die or pass away or, or act in a way that is uh, dissatisfying, act in a way that is unpleasant for us which of course is the, the, the big deal with our relations with other people. The reason why we suffer from others is because we expect them to act in a certain way, like this woman expected her teacher to act, obviously expected him to be kind and caring and, and flattering as he would be, as long as he was the one getting the, the praise from praise as a teacher. Uh, but then as soon as he felt threatened, he, he, he attacked her, which of course is well, it's something that quite it's upsetting after being so accustomed to such flattering, uh, pleasing, honey-coated words, honey-coated speech from this ascetic. So the um, the the attachment. It's just another example of the attachment to pleasure, the attachment to to the positive side of life that um, that leads to an inability to accept the more displeasing aspects of experience, which is of course you know, directly what we're confronting in meditation, helping us to see through this and to experience things just as they are and find happiness inside ourselves. So that when other people abuse us, or scold us, or insult us, or um, manipulate us, we don't get upset as a result of the things they do and say. We're not worried about what other people think. This is another level. This, we realize that it, it really has... Well, we realize generally the, that the most important thing is our happiness. And we get a, a clearer sense of this, and a sense of what it is that's causing us suffering. It's our our need to, to um, well, our need to experience certain states and not experience certain other states. For example, our need to receive praise. So we we try to live up to other people's expectations. This woman felt like she had um, not lived up to her teacher's expectations, and as a result, that was, that was kind of a feeling of of suffering for her. Because we get such pleasure when people praise us, when they say, oh, what a good person you are, How, what a smart and kind and what a funny, witty, intelligent person you are, what a beautiful person you are, and so on. So we expect all of these things. Um, or we, 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 we expect this kind of, of praise. And so we work hard for it. We think that that's satisfying. And as a result of mis- uh, misunderstanding experience and thinking that happiness can be found in external things in these things and thinking that there's somehow some sort of accumulative 
satisfaction that can be gained from this. We chase after it and as a result are upset when we don't get it. And, uh, and moreover, it helps us to let go of the, the problems of other people, not worrying so much about their well-being or, as I said, or their progress or their problems. And meditation helps us to see things from our own perspective and to realize that everyone has to, follow, has to watch their own feet. Everyone has to concern themselves with their own well-being and, and their own good deeds and not worrying so much about uh, how others behave. So th this is kind of what you see through the meditation practice. The more you meditate, the more you realize, the more you, more you focus on ultimate reality, the more you realize that there's no benefit that comes from stress, from worrying, from concern about other people and their deeds. It only puts you in dependency. And, and this is kind of the, the wonderful thing you realize in meditation, that you find a means of becoming invincible. You find a means of not being um, subject to the, not being, um, not being vulnerable to the abuse of other people, to, to the whims of others, which is a very difficult, it's something that we would never, we would never even think possible if we had not practiced meditation, because we would think, because we live on this conventional level, we think it's impossible to avoid other people saying bad things to you, therefore it's impossible to not be affected by them. Because we think there's something intrinsically bad about bad speech and bad deeds and, and about disheart dis dissonance and so on. Through the meditation we realize this isn't so, that it's only our reactions to things that are the problem. And that in fact no one can ever hurt us or cause us suffering unless we are vulnerable, unless we make ourselves vulnerable. And so through the meditation, through seeing the difference between reality and concepts and experience and um, mental formations, we, we live on a level of experience. When someone says something to us, we know that someone's saying something to us. When we think something, we know we're thinking something. So we never have any of these, con or we never fall prey to any of these concepts that, uh, th oh, this person did that to me, this person did this to me, and so on. We're not subject to it because we're living. It's, I mean, it's quite a simple concept. We just live in reality. When you hear something, it's just hearing. When you, when you dislike something, it's just disliking. When you like something, it's liking. And so you slowly work yourself out of this, and in the end, you stop liking things. You stop disliking things. You find happiness inside, you find peace inside. And you experience things as they are, not how you would like them to be, or how you, um, how you believe them to be. You really understand them as they are. There's no projection, there's no extrapolation. There's nothing superfluous or, or add, no chemical additives. It's all natural. You only experience reality as it is. And so nothing can harm you. It's like um, my teacher once said, if someone calls you a buffalo, just t look, turn around and see if you have a tail. If you don't have a tail, you're not a buffalo. Because in Thailand, it's a real insult to be called a buffalo. And so you say, you know, it's not really something you should be upset about or, or, or concerned about. And this is a, a, an a, epitomizes sort of the, the concept here that 
there, if, if something's true, you accept it as true. If something's false, you accept it as false. If something's right, you accept it as right. If something's wrong, you accept it as right. But there's no, re there's no reason to get upset about it. If someone calls you a, a buffalo, well, you just know that it's false. I mean, why, why would you get, get upset? What, what reason do you have? What benefit comes from getting upset? And this is really the point is without meditation practice, we do think that there's some benefit to clinging, we think there's some benefit to getting upset, we think there's some satisfaction that comes from all of this, from comparing ourselves to others, from trying to live up to other people's expectations, from worrying about other people's deeds and misdeeds, all of which is false. Uh, through the meditation practice we come to see that this is not the truth of reality, that none of this is real, none of this is true. And there's no satisfaction, no happiness that comes from that. So that's the verse for today, and that's the story that goes behind it. Thank you all for tuning in and watching this and continuing to keep up with our slow progress through the Dhammapada. And please tune in next time. I hope that this has been um, beneficial, useful, and, and helps all of you to uh, progress on the path and find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Thank you for tuning in. Have a good day.